Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. I'm Phil Harland, a prof at York University. We're continuing to unpack the question of the origins of apocalypticism in these first few episodes. In this third episode, we're considering the Israelite cultural context. In particular, we're going to look at how prophecy in the Hebrew Bible give us a glimpse into a forerunner, you could say, for apocalypticism. Clearly, there's continuity, is what I argue. However, something new, some new transformation, you could say, takes place with the later apocalyptic writings that set them apart from the earlier Israelite and Hebrew prophets in the Hebrew Bible. So that's going to be my point for today. If you want to read further on this sort of subject, there are several works that have argued for the primary importance of Israelite prophecy for understanding the development of apocalypticism. First of all, back in 1975, P.D. Hansen did his book called Dawn of Apocalyptic, which argued that you could actually find the origins of apocalypticism within Isaiah chapters 56 to 66. In other words, that that is a precursor to apocalypticism. Others have argued against certain points of his argument subsequently, but nonetheless, this issue of prophecy as we see it in the Hebrew Bible playing a very fundamental role in the development of apocalypticism is still held by many other scholars. One of them is Stephen Cook, who wrote a book more recently in 1995 called Prophecy and Apocalypticism. Stephen Cook argued that prophecy is essential for understanding the origins of apocalypticism, but he had a different take on who was involved in the development of apocalypticism. The third scholar is the one that we've been using as a textbook, John J. Collins. John J. Collins has frequently addressed this question, and he also, like Cook and Hansen, gives a primary importance to prophecy in the Hebrew Bible as the origins of apocalypticism. Now, we need to take a quick step back and just mention the fact that there are debates among scholars as to which of these different cultural backgrounds are more important for understanding the emergence of apocalypticism. We've dealt with the combat myth in ancient Mesopotamia. Virtually all scholars acknowledge the importance of the combat myth. We dealt with Zoroastrianism within the Persian context. Scholars like Cohn, who wrote that Cosmos Chaos in the World to Come, emphasize the primary importance of Zoroastrianism for the origins of Judean apocalypticism and would put less of an emphasis on the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Whereas scholars like Collins, who I tend to agree with in some respects, would put a heavier emphasis on the prophets in the Hebrew Bible playing a role in the development of apocalypticism. Now, having said, I tend towards the importance of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible as a precursor to apocalypticism. I want to emphasize, as you learned from that previous discussion, that Zoroastrianism, too, played a fundamental role. The difficulty there, as you may remember, is the dating of Zoroaster and the dating of Zoroastrian material that make it difficult for us to know which components, which aspects of Zoroastrianism played a role in the development of apocalypticism. Thankfully, with the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, we're more in a direct lineage, let's put it. We're more in the same cultural sphere, and there's more of a direct way we can see the influence and the development of prophetic writings in the Hebrew Bible in the direction they head towards apocalypticism. Not only that, but the Judean apocalyptic writers of later periods, after 200 BCE, when we first get this 
coming on our radar screen, those writers directly use many of these prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Now, having said all that, it's important to underline something, that the apocalyptic worldview, as I defined it in the earliest lecture in this series, did not exist and was not there in full-blown form back in the Hebrew Bible. However, we begin to see the seeds of it there. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at two ways in which the prophets of the Hebrew Bible illustrate the seeds of apocalypticism. There's the issue of the form of writings that we find in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, what type of writings they are, oracles, and what they are like in terms of literature. And there's the issue of content, particularly the issue of what themes do the prophets in the Hebrew Bible deal with that later become important themes within apocalypticism in a transformed way. This is the primary way I would argue the point, that we can see fundamental continuity from the prophets, both in terms of form and content, into apocalypticism, that there are very important things both on the side of what type of literature they are and on the side of what sort of issues and themes they deal with that continue to be important within apocalypticism. However, within the apocalyptic literature, the full-blown apocalyptic worldview emerges, which transforms many aspects of the themes that were already there within the prophets and adds new themes and puts them in a new way. So that's my main point for today. Let's finally get into this. In the class when we met with the students this past week, we asked several questions. One was, what were the similarities and differences in literary forms between the prophets in the Hebrew Bible and later apocalyptic literature? So the genre issue, how did the prophets influence, you could say, the development of apocalypse as a genre of literature. The other main issue was what are the similarities and differences in worldviews and assumptions? And that it's within this second question that the issue of themes came up. What recurring themes in the prophets come to play a role or a key role in later apocalyptic literature? These are the questions that they had on their minds and that we tried to address as we went along. Within those themes, there are several I want to mention now and that will unpack somewhat as we work through several passages in some of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. One theme that recurs in Ezekiel that we're going to read a passage of, uh, Zechariah that we're going to read a passage of, and Isaiah is this idea of that day or the day or the day of Yahweh. This idea of some important day when God would intervene in a particular way plays an important role in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. The question we had to ask ourselves in the class, and that we'll try and answer today to some degree, is what is that day for a particular author? What is that day for Ezekiel? What is that day, the God of day of Yahweh, for Zechariah? What is that day for Isaiah? This is an important question to ask. Because we, looking uh, in hindsight, might start to project onto the prophets in the Hebrew Bible very apocalyptic notions uh, uh, packed into that idea of that day that we shouldn't project back. we got to figure out what they think and then see how it's different from 
let's call it that day within apocalypticism. In other words, that final cosmic intervention of God to reestablish a whole new creation, you could say, that is characteristic of the later apocalyptic writings is not so much there in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. So that day is different. What we noticed is that on that day in the Hebrew Bible, there are several themes that recur and that later become important within apocalypticism. On that day, there will be battles, the triumph over foes. And the question we try to address is, what, are the, what is the nature of those foes? It, that is the key difference between the prophets and the later apocalyptic writings. Namely, that the foes in the prophetic writings are political foes, are Babylon. Whereas within the apocalyptic worldview, there's a more cosmic proportions, let's call it far larger scale notion of a battle, a battle between good and evil, a battle between God and Satan. Satan is not there in the way that it is in the later apocalyptic writings. The other issue we notice is this idea of a banquet to celebrate the triumph of God in that battle that recurs in some of the prophets we read. This too becomes important in later apocalypticism, but in a different way. Finally, and most importantly, the dominant theme of many of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible and a key theme in the passages I had the students read is the idea of the restoration of Israel and the establishment of God's rule or kingdom, whether that be God ruling as king himself or God establishing a king, a king like David, let's say, to rule reestablished and restored Israel. This is a dominant theme in the context of the Hebrew Bible, primarily because most of the authors that we're dealing with here are living at a time when Babylon has taken the upper classes of Judea away and has destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. They're looking forward to a time when they can return and God would reestablish Israel in the land of Israel. And so this is a dominant theme in the prophetic writings of the Hebrew Bible. Once again, this issue of God's kingdom being established gets transformed later on within the apocalyptic worldview. We begin to see the seeds of it, however, in some of the later prophetic writings. So when we went through these various themes, one of the things we kept trying to ask ourselves is, what is missing in the prophets? Because although we're arguing there's continuity, and although it's very clear that there's direct cultural continuity from the prophets into apocalyptic writings, nonetheless we have to be very attentive to what's different. Otherwise the whole definition of apocalypticism falls apart. Otherwise there's no difference between prophecy and apocalypticism. Let me just say something quickly about what is missing before we look at a couple passages. What's missing in the prophets that is there in the later apocalyptic writings are several key components that are at the heart of apocalypticism as we've defined it. The resurrection of the dead, the literal resurrection of dead bodies or of spirits to be judged at the end times is missing in the Hebrew prophets. Now judgment is there, we'll soon see, but not resurrection of people to be judged. The ultimate destination of human beings is not the central focus of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. This idea of an afterlife is not there in the uh, prophets in the way that it is in apocalyptic 
writings and within the apocalyptic worldview. The other thing that's missing in the prophets that is very prominent in the apocalyptic writings later on is Satan as a personified evil figure, as a morally evil figure opposed to God and fighting against God's plans. This idea of Satan is at the heart of the apocalyptic worldview later on, and it does not come up clearly in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. The prophets of the Hebrew Bible sometimes do have an adversary figure, Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary, the prosecutor. However, they do not have a cosmic personified evil figure that is uh, the opponent against God. Now, before I get into a few examples of passages in the Hebrew Bible and the prophets that illustrate some of the uh, ways in which these writings both affected the form of apocalypticism and the content of apocalypticism, I want to say a couple words about history that are important for understanding the context of these prophets. Let's go back to about 1000 BCE, first of all. Remember that uh, David and then Solomon uh, represent kings of Israel that had uh, united the various 12 tribes of Israel together under one king. That in 1000 BCE and following for a couple centuries, we have a united Israel under one king, with all 12 tribes being ruled by that one king. This notion of a united Israel is very important subsequently within the Hebrew Bible, and especially in the prophets that we're dealing with today. Because uh, we'll soon see that the restoration of Israel and the reuniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is an important notion in many of the prophets. Move ahead now a couple centuries and what happens is the breakdown of this united Israel so that there is formed a northern kingdom, Samaria, Galilee, and a southern kingdom, the area of what used to be the tribe of Judah, later to be called Judea, centered around Jerusalem. The north and the south kingdom each have their own king. There's struggles between the two parts of Israel. What happens in the late 700s BCE and 721 BCE is that an external power, Assyria, has come to be prominent and succeeds in taking a variety of areas around Assyria and around Ashur, the central city of Assyria, including the northern kingdom of Israel. So that the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrian forces in 721 BCE. So that this includes Samaria and Galilee that are conquered by the Assyrians. This becomes a very traumatic moment in history, you can imagine. And some of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, which we're not primarily looking at today, try and struggle with what has happened and what this means for the people of Israel and for the, uh, how they should view their God and their God's relationship with them. Move ahead a century or so, and the Babylonians are now the ascendant power within Mesopotamia and that they start to take over territories previously held by the Assyrians, and they succeed in taking the southern kingdom, so that Judea, Judah, and Jerusalem specifically, and the temple fall in 586 BCE. So this is the first temple being destroyed, and then later on we're going to have the building of the second temple, which is why scholars talk about the period from 500 on as the second temple period. The falling of Jerusalem 
is fundamental. And the destruction of the temple is important beyond what you might first think. Remember that the, in the ancient Near East, including in Israel, the notion was that the God of one's nation, in this case Yahweh, the God of the nation of Israel, dwells within the temple. And that the temple is his throne. And that the temple is the symbol of God being with his people. So you can imagine that the destruction of the temple is more than the destruction of a building. The destruction of the temple is an identity crisis. It is precisely this catastrophic event of a foreign power Babylon coming and destroying the temple of Yahweh that is the issue that is struggled with by many of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. It is also this context that helps you to understand the notion of the restoration of Israel because remember that when the temple is destroyed, many of the upper classes of Judea and Jerusalem are taken away into exile in Babylonia. They are taken away so that they can't rule the place anymore, but they're uh, disjointed from the land God gave them is how they would see it. Not only that, but the temple of their God has been destroyed by the Babylonians. This central issue is what is on the minds of many prophets in the Hebrew Bible, and this idea of the restoration of Israel, the return to the land, the reestablishment of a political power of Israel under the God Yahweh and under God's choice king is what it really occupies the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And it's within that context that many of the themes that came to play a role in apocalypticism exist. It is within that context of struggling with the destruction of the temple in 586 BCE that many of the seeds of apocalypticism start to emerge. So in our very quick sketch of history here, we've talked about the Assyrian power being prominent, taking the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonian empire becoming more prominent and taking the southern kingdom, the exile of Judeans and the destruction of the temple, looking forward to a return to Israel. Well, this takes place under the next main power that gains dominance in uh, the ancient Near East, and that is Persia. Persia begins to gain dominance in the mid-550s and after. The Persians have the policy of allowing people who have been exiled by the Babylonians to return to their country. Not only that, but the Persians actually assist in things like the rebuilding of the country and the rebuilding of the temple. And so that is known as the return that takes place under the Pers first Persian kings with Judeans returning to Jerusalem and re-establishing a society and ultimately building a new temple, what we call the Second Temple. The Second Temple period then begins about 500 BCE. So that is the quick sketch of context there that will help you to understand some of the prophets we're looking at. But what we're concentrating on is less the historical issues I've just quickly outlined for you that you need to know to some degree to understand these things, and more on the issue of what themes emerge in the context of addressing those historical issues, and how do they later play a role within apocalypticism. There's three main passages I want to briefly touch on today. First of all, Ezekiel, chapters 37 to 39. Secondly, Zechariah, chapters 1 to 8 which dates separately from chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah, which are later. And finally, Isaiah chapters 24 to 27. 
uh, sometimes known as the Isaiah Apocalypse. So you can already tell why that one was selected. In this episode, I only begin to delve into Ezekiel. And then in the next episode, we look at Zechariah and then the Isaiah passage. Let's look at Ezekiel first of all. Ezekiel is a prophet and a priest who is exiled along with in the Babylonian context when the Babylonians come and take away the upper classes of Judea. He's one among the priests who are taken away into exile. And he hangs out with other priests in the context of Babylonia. And he is a prophet as well who feels that God communicates directly to him. That's what a prophet is in the Hebrew Bible. The spokesperson of God who feels that God directly communicates what he wants to communicate to the people and that the prophet then proclaims it to the people after Yahweh has told him what to say. And so many of the oracles, let's call them, within the Hebrew Bible, within the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, are expressed as the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me on such and such a day. And then the word of the Lord being stated, what Yahweh says to the people being stated. So Ezekiel is an example of this. In the chapters 37 to 39 that I chose for the students, uh, we have some material that becomes important for apocalypticism later on in two ways. First of all, we have much of the imagery we have in Ezekiel is actually directly related to some of our important apocalypses later on. The book of John's Apocalypse in the Bible, the Revelation, directly quotes from and directly uses and directly reworks many of the visionary sort of material we find in Ezekiel. But there are also other ways in which Ezekiel is important for seeing this continuity between the prophets and apocalyptic writings. In chapter 37, there are two different visions that Ezekiel sees that have importance for us here. And they're both visions of the restoration of Israel. The first is a, a vision where Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones. He then begins to see these bones coming together and reforming themselves and flesh being put upon the bones and the bodies coming back to life. Explicitly in the narrative itself, this is interpreted not as an end time resurrection of human bodies for judgment, not at all. Instead is explicitly interpreted as the restoration of Israel. Remember that he's living at a time when the upper classes of Judea are in exile and they're looking forward to the return to Israel and that this is what this vision means for Ezekiel. Then Yahweh said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. So for the exiles in Babylonia, at least for Ezekiel and his circle of people, the exile is the equivalent of death being cut off from the land that God made, gave them, being cut off from the society they knew. And this is death to them, the dry bones situation that they are in. There continues, therefore prophesy and say to the people, thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Yahweh when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. So it's this analogy of Babylonia as the grave, as the exile as the grave, and that the people in exile will be brought out of the grave, brought out of Babylonia, and returned to the land of Israel. It's quite explicitly stated here. 
So this is the sort of imagery that you'll encounter and also the sort of idea that you will encounter in many of the prophets of the exilic period, of the Babylonian exile period in the 500s BCE. He then goes on to another vision that God shows to him, he expresses. This one is the vision of two sticks, with one stick representing Judah, southern portion of Israel, and the other stick representing Joseph, the rest of Israel, and the idea of the two sticks being reunited. So once again, it's an image of the restoration of Israel. You're in exile, looking forward to the return to God reestablishing his nation. One of the things that emerges here, though, in chapter 37 that's important to highlight is the importance of kingship within the context of how an author like Ezekiel looks forward to a restoration. He talks about the restoration taking place and then being established under one king. One king shall be king over them all. Never again shall they be two nations, the northern and southern kingdom, and never again shall they be divided into two kingdoms. Further on in verse 24 and following, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Many of the authors of the Hebrew Bible look back to previous kings, in particular to David, as the ideal king. And so here we have the idea of a restoration will take place in which the nation of Israel will be reestablished, and the tribes of Israel will be reunited, and that they will be ruled by a king like David. But these ideas get transformed into the notion of the kingdom of God within the apocalyptic worldview. This kingdom that we see here is cosmic in some ways, you could say, in the sense that God is intervening in a very fundamental way to bring Judeans back from exile to a new nation and to reestablish his nation. But it's a very down-to-earth political way of looking at things, isn't it? That it's going to be a reestablishment of the nation of Israel and that it's going to be literally the returning of people from Babylonia back to Jerusalem and back to Israel as a whole and a reuniting of the literal tribes of Israel, not in an afterlife, but rather in this life. That it's a down-to-earth sort of kingdom that's going to be established. It's nonetheless God's kingdom, isn't it? But God's kingdom within later apocalyptic literature owes something to this. It's a transformation of this idea of the restoration of Israel, the restoration of the nation of Israel, gets transformed into God establishing his kingdom in cosmic proportions to reestablish a whole new creation is a good way of putting it for understanding the difference between the prophets here and some of the later apocalyptic writings. But at least we're seeing the seeds, though. We're seeing what themes get transformed in later apocalyptic literature. Let's look ahead now to chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. This is the passage that deals with a king called Gog in the land of Magog. Neither the name Gog nor the place Magog is known. And it's more likely that Ezekiel is here creating imagery in order to speak of a political power that will come to battle against Israel in some future time here. Once again, this is an oracle, so it begins, the word of Yahweh came to me, Ezekiel says. He then states what the word of Yahweh is, and it includes this imagery that Ezekiel sees. Mortal, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. 
prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws, and I will lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great company, all of them with shield and buckler, wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and put. Other nations will join this nation that will attack Israel, are with them, all of them with buckler and helmet. There's going to be a battle here. And this is the imagery that's most important to notice here, is the importance of the battle between God and his nation and other nations that's being explained here in a particular way in Ezekiel, that there's looking forward to a future battle between God and the uh, opponent nations of Israel. Further on, verses 14 and following. Therefore, mortal, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Yahweh God, On that day, that day, to this issue of that day for the prophets, On that day, when my people Israel are living securely, back in the restored Israel, you will rouse yourself and come from your place out of the remotest parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You, Gog, will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the earth. In the latter days I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I display my holiness before their eyes. So there is a bit more of a cosmic proportion here, but it's a battle between nations. This reference to to Gog being the king of a nation to the north may be best understood in terms of Babylon. We know that from some of the other prophets in the Hebrew Bible, this idea of a nation to the north attacking Israel and being the enemy of Israel is most often speaking of Babylon. And in this context of Ezekiel, this makes most sense as well. Because remember, Ezekiel's living in the Babylonian exile after Babylon has destroyed the temple. Ezekiel's looking forward to the restoration of Israel and then has an image of Babylon as the uh, opponent enemy nation that will once again try and destroy God's nation that is reestablished. Further on, it says more about that day, that day of battle between the nation of Israel and, and God on their side and this Gog from the north, most likely Babylon. On that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all human beings that are on the face of the earth shall quake at God's presence. My presence, he says here. Remember, it's God speaking in this context. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon the sword against Gog and all my mountains, says the Lord God. The swords of all will be against their comrades. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will pour down torrential rains and hailstorms, fire and sulfur upon him and his troops and the many peoples that are gathered with him. So I will display my greatness, Yahweh says, and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then shall the nations know that I am Yahweh. Here then in Ezekiel, we have the image of a battle to come between the nation of Israel and nations from the nation from the north along with other nations. And that this battle is the judgment of God 
this battle, the defeat of the forces of the enemy nation is the judgment of God in the way that Ezekiel is speaking here. So we have war and judgment simultaneously here in Ezekiel. It's worth noting that. Remember that later within apocalyptic literature, we have judgment understood in a different way and battle very important. The combat myth that we've already been talking about, it gets transformed in a particular way in connection with this idea from the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And Ezekiel in particular is important for the later development of the book of Revelation's idea of the final battle of God versus God versus Satan. That is not here. Satan doesn't appear in Ezekiel. But later on in the first century CE, when John's writing, he draws heavily on this imagery of the battle against God from Ezekiel in order to develop the idea of a cosmic battle between God and Satan in the end times within the book of Revelation. But here it's more of a down-to-earth thing. Turning back to Ezekiel here, Signs of what will happen on that day are quite prevalent. All of nature is affected, you could say, by God's action in defeating and judging Gog here in Ezekiel. So there are cosmic proportions to what's happening, but it's, it's heading towards apocalypticism, let's put it. But it's not that full-blown battle between God and an evil satanic power. Also on that day, let's see what else happens. There's a sacrificial feast. When the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel are defeated, the soldiers themselves become the food for the feast. And thankfully, it's not humans eating this feast. It's the birds of the air and the wild animals. We'll have a sacrificial feast, we find in chapter 39, verses 17 and following. As for you, mortals, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every kind and to all the wild animals. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast. So we have the theme of a sacrificial feast in connection with a major battle between God and, and enemy nations here. A sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat until you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with warriors and all kinds of soldiers, says the Lord God. There you have it. On that day, remember this is the notion that Ezekiel has, that day, God's very important intervention to restore Israel and then later to ward off the enemy forces of Israel ends with a sacrificial feast. This idea of a feast after the end time battle in apocalyptic worldview, not in Ezekiel, but in the apocalyptic worldview in later literature, is very important and we'll come across it again, the, end, the idea of an end time banquet. This idea gets transformed within apocalypticism in a particular way. But once again, chapter 39 of Ezekiel underlines that all of this has to do with the judgment of the nations. It's the nations other than Israel that are the focus of judgment in prophets like Ezekiel. And this intervention of God is focused on judging those nations, not on judging the moral good and evil of individuals as it begins to develop in later apocalypticism, but rather the judgment of nations that are real nations around Israel in the real world here. 
And so it's important to remember that distinction. Uh, soon we'll notice in later literature that we look at of apocalypticism, that this idea of judgment gets, again, a more cosmic proportion to it and becomes a cosmic judgment over all the living, that there's a resurrection of the dead that are judged. That does not occur here in Ezekiel. It does not seem to be the sort of thing that Ezekiel has in mind as to what will happen on that day when God intervenes in a fundamental way. Join me next time as we continue this discussion of the importance of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible for the subsequent development of apocalypticism, the continuity that is there, and yet the ways in which apocalypticism transform themes that we find within the prophets. We'll continue with Zechariah and then with Isaiah 24 to 27 next episode.